0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This podcast is for listeners who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean to learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Ahmed El Mazmi, a PhD candidate at Princeton University. Today, we are here to talk to Professor Lucia Carminati about her new book, Seeking Bread and Fortune in Port Said. Labor, Migration and the Making of the Suez Canal between 1859 to 1906, published recently by the University of California Press. Professor Carminati is an associate professor of history at the University of Oslo. She's a historian of migration and the modern Middle East, researching the social and cultural history of Egypt in the 19th and 20th centuries, focusing on migratory routes and mobility at large imperial interests and infrastructural transformations. Today's book, Seeking Bread and Fortune in Port Said, probes migrant labor's role in shaping the history of the Suez Canal and modern Egypt. It maps the everyday life of Port Said's residence between 1859, when the town was founded as the Suez Canal's northern harbor, and 1906, when a railway connected it to the rest of Egypt. Through groundbreaking research, Lucia Karminati provides a ground-level perspective on the key processes touching late 19th-century Egypt, which are heightened domestic mobility and immigration, intensified urbanization, changing urban governance, and growing foreign encroachment. By privileging migrants' uh, prosaic lives, seeking bread and fortune in Port Said shows how unevenness and inequality laid the groundwork for the Suez Canal's making. Welcome, Lutia, to the new books in the Indian Ocean world. And thanks so much for taking the time to talk about the book.
1: Thank you, Ahmed. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you.
0: The pleasure is all ours. We would like first to learn about the author. Can you please start it off, uh, off by saying a few words about yourself? That is where you grew up, where you went to school. I became interested in Port Said and any influential mentors or uh, books along the way.
1: Sure. Um, I grew up in Italy, which is where I pursued my undergraduate studies and my uh, master's degree. And later, when I traveled to the U.S. to uh, start my Ph.D. at the University of Arizona, I had uh, the wonderful pleasure to meet uh, the person who would become my mentor. Uh, Julia Clancy Smith, who's a renowned historian of the Mediterranean, uh, of Tunisia, and of much more. And she inspired me to become a historian of migration. I had been interested in Egypt um, since my undergraduate studies, because that's where I had been studying both Fusha and uh, Ammeya. So I had been traveling to Cairo and studying Arabic. Um, And so I knew that I wanted to explore Egyptian history further, and uh, I I quickly came to discover that uh, Port Said and the Suez Canal region really uh, needed to be be written about in a a different way because um, what most of the historiography had been concerned about was uh, success stories of the uh, technological uh, triumph or the the diplomatic uh, bickering uh, following or preceding the construction the excavation of the Suez Canal. But what I came to be mostly interested in was uh, the very human story behind the uh, behind the undertaking, uh, which was uh, which was a history of migration, which was a history of people coming to this uh, region uh, that had been underpopulated uh, from other parts of Egypt, from other regions uh, of from other provinces of the Ottoman Empire, as well as other Mediterranean uh, regions uh, and European. Countries, so really, this was a, um, a place uh, made from from scratch and inhabited by many different individuals and and, and groups who uh, started interacting in novel ways, and so that's what I uh, became interested in 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 exploring and writing about.
0: Thank you for that. Um, you opened the book with a quotation that we just mentioned uh, from the Romanian writer uh, Estrati from 1934, in which he says, Port Said will remain for me the great crossroads of maritime routes where my heart has felt and recorded the pulsation of the arteries of the universal life of our planet. Uh, Can you uh, tell us in in more details how you became interested in exploring the role of migrant labor in shaping the history of the Suez Canal and modern Egypt?
1: Yeah, so... And this can be edited, I guess. (laughs) Sorry, I need to clear my throat. Uh, Panaite Strati's citation uh, really struck me and and, uh, remained with me because I think it captures one of the basic tensions that the book tries to recreate. So on the one hand, there was the rhetoric of the Suez Canal as this uh, modern global waterway that would Open up uh, maritime circulation to uh, to the world's inhabitants uh, in a in a sort of a romanticized uh, idealized way, and then on the other hand, there were the inequalities and the, and the uh, and the lack of um, the lack of access to these um, promises of global mobility that the Swiss canal theoretically embodied. And uh, Panaiti Strati, who traveled to Egypt several times in the very beginning of the 20th century, uh, and then later on published his uh, impressions, his writings, um, sort of, he captured uh, this, this tension, I think, because he did travel in and out of Egypt. So, in a way, he had a privileged access to these new forms of mobility. But then at the same time, he was what someone else defined a member of the traveling boheme of the early 20th century. So he was uh, uh, an intellectual, uh, but a but a working class intellectual who came from a humble beginnings and um, also was not part of the of the wealthy uh, elites. Uh, of the so-called cosmopolitan past of Egypt that, again, has been romanticized so often. So I think that this one person whose citation I decided to include at the very beginning of the book, uh, again, captures uh, in his own person um, this this sort of, this tension, this ambivalence about mobility in the late 19th and early 20th century.
0: The idea of the Suez Canal has been preoccupying uh, humans for thousands of years. Um, how do you explain this preoccupation with the idea of the Suez Canal from pharaonic times all the way to the Ottomans?
1: Well, definitely the, um, the idea or the plan to create a shortcut, um, a, a bridge that would uh, unite the Mediterranean and the Red Sea, as well as Uh, separate or or create a cleavage between Asia and Africa uh, had been around, as you noted, for for centuries and uh, had been a a sort of a political dream or uh, or, um, uh, a plan uh, uh, by by many, cultivated by many. Uh, What happens in the 19th century is that this dream uh, becomes possible. But remains wedded to, uh, of course, uh, colonizing plants. And so we see how the Swiss Canal project and undertaking becomes the lightning rod of. of French interests embodied by the Swiss canal kind of company, uh, it becomes contested uh, first and later embraced by the British. Uh, it becomes something that the Egyptian autonomous, still Ottoman but but autonomous ruler of Egypt, uh, becomes enamored with, uh, and of course at the same time it becomes a project that the Ottoman center, that Istanbul. Um, sort of is not enthusiastic about because it did present uh, uh, a breach of Ottoman sovereignty. Uh, so in, uh, in 1859, we see the beginning of the excavation starting uh, in Port Said. So starting uh, at this one point on the northern Egyptian Mediterranean shore. Uh, going southwards and that made sense because um, uh, equipment um, sort of the, the materials needed for the excavation uh, would be shipped from uh, from the north from Marseille. Uh, And so uh, mostly so that it made sense to start from Port Said going southwards. Uh, But we see how with the beginning of of the excavation, uh, a harsh uh, sort of diplomatic uh, political struggle also unfolds. And um, what I argue in the book or part of my argument is about uh, the important central role of migrant labor in these uh, broader diplomatic um, clashes, how uh, these workers who started gathering on the Northern Egyptian shore uh, in April 1859 and onwards, how they became sort of pawns in a a bigger game. Um, But by showing that they became pawns, uh, my intention is not to see, it's not to project them as uh, passive victims, but, Rather, it's to show how it's to show their historical role. It's to make sure that migrant labor, uh, the role of migrant labor in history actually shines through and how the presence and the activities of these laborers, who often were uh, difficult to uh, to govern, to control, how this presence actually became something that um, uh the, the authorities were very much concerned about and something that affected authorities' decision on this uh, strip of land that was being cut, uh, going southwards towards Suez on the southern uh, edge of uh, the, the Isthmus of Suez, of this deserted strip of land. And Suez, of course, lay on the Red Sea. So became sort of the, the 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 end goal, the destination of the project of the Suez Canal.
0: The history of Egypt is characterized uh, in, in many ways by mega projects from its ancient times to the Muhammad Ali Pasha, Alexandria canals and other projects. But what sets the Suez Canal apart from all of these mega projects? Is it because of its transregional history? And if so... How does that change our view of Egyptian history?
1: So that's an interesting question. What I'm trying to do with the book uh, is actually to do exactly what you're um, sort of suggesting uh, does not apply to the Suez Canal. What I mean is that the Suez Canal has been always. Um, talked about in terms of um, its importance in uh, in regional histories, its importance in, in global histories of um, supposedly global circulation. But what I'm trying to do with the book is to plug the Swiss Canal into back into Egyptian history proper. And so I'm trying to show that, uh, yes, the Swiss Canal became uh, a contested terrain for um ottoman egyptian um uh, discussions and clashes it became a uh, uh, hot uh, sort of um A very contested ground for British and French clashes but um, this was not all happening uh, outside of Cairo's purview. Uh, This was something that could be uh, narrated and pictured as one of the mega projects uh, as one of the Egyptian mega projects that you've mentioned and what I'm trying to show is that Actually, uh, the Egyptian rulers were much more present and vocal than we've or always pictured them to be in uh, in the historiography that we have available on the Swiss Canal, where they are mostly in the background and mostly uh, silent or passive. So. Um, I am trying to capture the Suez Canal in its um, broader regional and global relevance, but I'm, not, I'm trying not to forget the Egyptian, the specifically Egyptian, and of course Egyptian Ottoman, but uh, the Egyptian context in which this history unfolded. And so uh, sections of the book, for example, uh, do recall the, uh, the Mahmoudiyah's canal and uh, actually create a parallel uh, between uh, the, that earlier project and the Suez Canal project by saying that uh, in, in Suez or uh, in the Isthmus of Suez, we see efforts by uh, Cairo uh, to actually reach out and mm, grasp control of what was happening of the uh, immigrant, of the growing immigrant population, and the Coast, Suez, uh, of, for example, uh, policing functions over these unruly population. So even if these efforts may have been uh, not that successful, I'm still trying to uh, to gauge the Egyptian state's presence in this uh, strip of land by showing that at least authorities were trying and we're trying really hard. And we're negotiating with uh, Swiss canal company officials. They were negotiating and clashing with uh, foreign consular representatives. So um, it's, it's these uh, negotiations and these struggles that I'm most interested in more than the actual success or whether they actually managed to control, uh, these these migrant population and these budding towns that were coming into being along the Swiss Canal uh, in the making, and so specifically, I'm I'm talking about Port Said in the north, uh, Ismailia midway through the isthmus, and then uh, the 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 smaller uh, Port Ophir in the very south facing uh, pre the pre existing uh, port town of Suez.
0: So maybe what you're trying to say in a different way. Uh, is that Port Said can also uh, help us to think about the issue of scale and and narrating the history of the region between the local, the regional, and the global. And through looking at these different scales, we are getting different layers of the port's history. And you've decided to give more attention, unlike the previous scholarship, uh, on the lived experiences of the people who were attracted to join this project. Uh, Yes, please.
1: So, in a way, uh, this is a very, very relevant question, because I feel this is the most pressing challenge I've tried to grapple with. But what I've tried to do was actually to embrace both the uh, the broader perspectives, uh, as well as the everyday experience, um, sort of um, the everyday life of, of the, the people who actually made this project available. And so the book uh, really ranges from the macro to the microscopic. Um, tries to dwell on on people's everyday life concerns and the the stuff of um, of their sort of minuscule uh, concerns in a way. Uh, but what I'm trying to 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 do is to give relevance and um, and sort of. Um, uh, open up the conversation about what actually made the the Swiss Canal possible by embracing the lives of these often anonymous workers, both men and women uh, and as well as children who came and um, and inhabited these places and worked on this project.
0: Yes, and you give quite vivid accounts of these lives. Uh drawing on a plethora of of sources that you draw from different archives. So what kind of sources did you uh, lay on to reconstruct these everyday experiences? How did you go about uncovering the personal stories and perspectives of migrants and locals during this time?
1: So this was partly due to design and partly due to uh, happenstance discovering the archives, to be completely honest. Um, I had been planning to access uh, several different archives because I knew that in order to recreate the collective coral experience of of the Suez Canal undertaking from uh, the standpoint of migrant workers, I needed to access multiple perspectives. So I had planned to work in Britain, in France, in Italy, in Egypt. Uh, I also tried to check out archives in Malta, uh, but that didn't uh, bring me um, very far. Um, And then within each country, I also uh, accessed different types of archives. So I tried to work in both diplomatic, state, central archives, as well as smaller, um, smaller archives of, for example, religious uh, organizations, religious groups, uh, often Catholic who were assisting those uh, migrants who happened to be Catholic. Uh, But then... um, once in the archives, I also uh, discovered that uh, there were the file documents, the ones that I could um, sort of um, consult through the existing uh, indexes. Uh, but then other uh, kinds of documents, for example, letters, had not even been inventoried before by archivists. So those were the sense records that I was actually most excited about because these, in spite of their uh, not having been um, deemed important or meaningful uh, by authorities back then or by later by archivists, I think that these kind of sources are particularly uh, interesting because of the uh, everyday life details they contain and by the emotions that the authors often express. Uh, but I eventually, um, when writing the book itself, uh, because I was trying to address the uh, dilemma of different uh, nested scales, I tried to, uh, to combine both the state's uh, perspectives on migration processes, as well as the uh, on-the-ground perspectives of migrants themselves. And um, if I may uh, connect this to the to the chosen structure of the book, the four chapters actually um, sort of each, each of them includes these multiple perspectives. But then there's also a progression from the first chapter to the uh, fourth one. And what I mean by this is that the first uh, chapter uh, lingers on the uh, movements of migrants themselves towards the isthmus of Suez, so it has more of a of a bird view uh, perspective on the on the isthmus. The uh, second chapter uh, further zooms in and so has uh, a geographically more limited perspective on the Isthmus itself and on the processes of settling in and uh, creating a, a labor hierarchy based on uh, both gender um, gender and uh, ethnicity um, uh, and which yielded uh, a very strict uh, sort of hierarchy among workers. Uh, the third chapter further zooms in and um, lingers on uh, on on the Suez uh, Canal and the uh, the creation of. Um, of so-called illicit activities or the the efforts by the authorities con- to control such activities. And the fourth chapter further zooms into the uh, bars and um, cafes of Port Said itself, its streets, its entertainment venues, to uh, look at the interactions. Uh, the very um, sort of on the on the on the very molecular molecular level, uh, the interactions of different individuals and different groups within a specifically side's entertainment venues. So Thank this you. is the overall sort of arch that I I, I try to recreate with the with the structure of the chapters themselves.
0: Thank you for introducing us to the architecture of the book. Uh, that's really useful to navigate it. Um, I guess I'm wondering about since this, this is a history of migration also in many ways. How did you tackle the classical model of push and pull functionalism and thinking about uh, Port Said as a as as a, a node of traction that changed the demographic composition uh, and social dynamics uh, around the coast? And what were some of the key factors that contributed to the influx of migrants during this period?
1: Thanks for a wonderful question. This is the uh, another this is another big challenge that I had to grapple with. Because on the one hand, I tried to uh, show uh, what attracted people to Port Said, so perspectives of gain, either real or imagined. But then there was much more. Um, and so that's what the title itself of the book tries to capture. There's bread and there's fortune. <laughs> uh there's material gain but then there's also a less uh, sort of a tangible um it opens up uh the the migration option uh to less tangible perspectives of um of of gain uh what I mean by this is that uh, people were deciding to migrate because they often um, couldn't find jobs, and even in in parts uh, of of European countries which uh, we wouldn't uh, think uh, of uh, now as poor or uh, without resources, but that was the case uh, at this time in the 19th century. Uh, so, from regions, from um, from specific parts of of the European uh, continent, people were deciding to migrate, uh, were attracted by these perspectives of gain on the on the banks of the Suez Canal. Uh, but then there was much more. So um, there were deserters, for example, fleeing from the military, military conscription. There were uh, people, uh, individuals who were uh, sought after by authorities, uh, by the police, so they were escaping that. Uh, there were political Political uh, refugees, as well, uh, trying to uh, fight to 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 flee from political prosecution. Um, Women, for example, the migration of women opens up uh, a whole other discussion in terms of what uh, drew women, whether they were uh, joining uh, uh, male relatives or whether they were traveling by themselves. And I've uh, tried to, uh, the the host of characters in the book tries to embrace this diversity that, that I've just described. So, uh, for example, in terms of women, there are both those who traveled with their husbands. But then we also find cases of women traveling by themselves. And um, and so uh, while we need to recognize that uh, Egypt uh, in the mid 19th century, presented perspectives of economic uh, gain to prospective immigrants, we also need to open up the discussion to a whole other sorts, uh, to o- whole other uh, reasons to migrate that often we, we can't even account for because the sources do not really allow us to exactly pin down why certain individuals um, migrated to Egypt, and some of them actually just passed through and then moved on to uh, other destinations. So uh, again, um, it's um, it's not a linear. Uh, process from point A to point B that I'm trying to recreate, uh, but really it's about the uh, the complexity of migration in the mid-19th century, which also tries to say something uh, that is still relevant today about the uh, the multiplicity and the complexity of, of individual migration choices that are also always combined with broader economic and political choices. Uh, or otherwise uh, changes that affect individual decisions and agency.
0: This is helpful to think about the complexities uh, around the notion of mobility. But can you say more about how these migrants experience mobility, uh, where they come from, how did they experience the hardening of borders, the introduction of passport regimes, and policing of bodies and identities during this period?
1: some of the letters that I've mentioned before are the sources that allowed me to have a, a glimpse into the lived experience of migrants uh, but again that may not tell us the whole story so for example when it comes to uh, the challenge uh, of, of of movement or when it comes to uh, failures it's much, Harder to actually capture the the lived experience of of the people uh, living through uh, living through these events. What I've tried to what I've managed to reconstruct is uh, what people who actually made it, uh, who actually wrote from Egypt back home, uh, what they experienced. So in a way, even if I'm um, very excited about how vocal and how rich these sources are, I remain aware that. There's a there's a there's different stories that I wasn't able to to tell and recreate. Um, some of these letters speak of uh, the toughness, the hardships experienced by these migrants, especially especially early on, uh, in the very first few years of the excavation project, and so uh, the first half of the 1860s, for example, um, these uh, years. Um, are uh, years of, uh, of hard work, of poor shelters, of uh, scarcity of drinking water, for example, that letters themselves, uh, that migrants themselves capture in their letters back home, uh, in which they express their longing, their uh, isolation, their feelings of, uh, of having been forgotten by their own families, uh, even if I want to highlight here families were also present at the very beginning of the excavation. So I don't want to um, sort of give a picture of the work sites as uh, exclusively male pressing. Uh, male single individuals were present on the work sites, of course, but we also see that. Uh, women were there and families uh, also joined the venture early on hence we have the presence of children as well on the work sites of both children who were born there uh testifying to uh the the presence of sort of the the rela- to the fact that uh relations relationships were formed on site uh but also there's there's evidence of children migrating themselves uh to the Suez Canal kind of work sites and to uh, what will become uh Port Said, the town of Port Said and then the town of Ismaili and so on. Um when it comes to the hardening of uh, of of borders and the um the development of passport regimes and regimes of more uh, controlled mobility um that's actually something i'm really interested in uh, developing further so that's something that i'm planning uh, to uh, center my next book on. Uh, And I'm interested in that because I think that exploring the formation of uh, both both the tangible border and the more intangible practices around border crossing, that would give me the chance to both recreate or to to explore the experience of the uh, individuals actually doing the crossing, as well as the the perspective of the state, trying to to keep an eye uh, on uh, on what was happening along its borders and trying to develop uh, sort of more sustained practices of surveillance. I give an account of uh, some forms of surveillance developing, especially around Port Said, uh, in my chapter, in my third chapter about uh, policing and illegal activities and the uh, changes that happened with the transition to the um, to the British occupation post 1882, but uh, I think that this is where the book um, sort of um, uh, stops short <laughs> in a way because I was so enamored with um the migrant experience itself that i i i did not really fully develop uh, an exploration of uh the egyptian state's perspectives on what was happening i i tried to uh, to explore that but i think that uh uh, a full new uh, treatment of, uh, of Egyptian state formation when it came to borders uh, deserves its own uh, separate uh, treatment, which is something that I, again, I plan to, uh, to go on doing in the next future.
0: However, what you do in the book, and you do it well, is you give you give us uh, a sort of experiential reading of, of the notion of unevenness and inequality, which are key aspects that lay the groundwork for the Suez Canal's development. Can you elaborate more on how these socioeconomic disparities manifested in Port Said and their implications for the uh, broader historical narrative of Port Said?
1: Chapter two is the, the, um, the part of the book that, um, tries to fully develop a discussion of how uh, gender-based and ethnicity or racial, uh, racially informed categories came to be when it came to uh, developing uh, uh, a Swiss Canal society, a Port Saidian society which was very much based on, on, on work and on the labor uh, that was needed uh, that was re- required in the Swiss Canal project. Uh, and I tried to sort of describe the the discrepancy in a way between certain ideas of what uh, Egyptians sh- should be doing, of what Greeks should be doing, of what Italians should be doing. So on the one hand, sources themselves are um, in a way deceptive <laughs> because they describe how uh, certain groups were pursuing certain tasks. But then... Um, other sources that are more that are closer to uh, sort of everyday life and to what was actually happening on the ground. Uh, they reveal how, um different tasks actually uh, included uh, different kinds of people so for example the job of earth removal which was considered to be uh, a humble kind of task was not just performed by uh, egyptians for example but we see how a host of other individuals were also engaged in this kind of task on the other end of the spectrum we see how uh, for example um uh, other uh, kinds of more respectable jobs. Uh, uh also included not just uh french individuals but others were also uh, engaged in these um, different kinds of tasks so there's a gap between uh what um what people should be doing uh, according to these uh, to to these grand plans uh designed by the swiss canal company representatives and then there's a gap between that and what was actually happening um Every day on the Swiss canal work sites, um, and I can also cite um, something that I'm really interested in, and I couldn't um, develop further. But the issue of what language was spoken on the Swiss color work sites, there's some evidence of a kind of pidgin uh, that um, was a mix of Arabic and uh, of other terms um, that were circulating in the Mediterranean at the time. Uh, that seems to be the, the the pigeon in use on the swiss work worksites and that i think is um is a clear indication of how people were uh, working uh next to one another uh, interacting not necessarily uh, in a, in a in an ideal work in, in, in an ideal way often there were clashes there were uh, betrayals uh, so I'm not trying to argue that uh, different individuals and social groups were all getting along and cooperating and helping one another. But what I'm trying to say is that uh, they were much closer and mingled together than we, we may have thought uh, previously. And so it's that interaction that I think is worth uh, exploring more. And that's, it, it's that interaction that the, book's tra- the book tries to, to fully flesh out.
0: The year 906 marked the connection of Port Said to the rest of Egypt through a railway. How did this infrastructural change impact the town's growth, accessibility, and its relationship to the rest of the country?
1: That's a really an open question, and that's something that I've um, uh, illustrated in, a, in an article that came out on the International Journal of Middle Eastern Studies, uh, which is, um, connected to the book because it sort of further expounds something that I I go I go in uh, in my conclusion. And the open question that I'm referring to is whether Port Said was really uh, in Egypt, was really part of Egypt or was rather sort of attached to it but um, but remaining uh, tangential or secondary or or removed from from the rest of the country. And um, I don't have a a definite a definitive yes or no answer to this question, but what I try to show is the is the ambivalence of Port Said in being uh, in in probably being both things so on the one hand, being a stopover in 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 global trajectories uh, a, a, an egyptian port town uh, open to the world open to the uh, to the influx and the arrival of of people from all over uh, but i also try to show how um uh, how Port Said really became off Egypt as well, because Egyptian authorities, as I tried to explain before, were present. We're trying to uh, extend their reach to to this uh, strip of land, to to the Isthmus of Suez, um, and so they were not absent or, or removed. They were, of course, encountering challenges in doing what they wanted, but that doesn't mean that. Um, that the Egyptian state was absent. Uh, the issue of the infrastructure connecting uh, Port Said to the rest of Egypt remains uh, remained challenging. So remained an open an open uh, sort of. A, an issue that uh, different observers were, were wondering about and continue to wonder about for decades. So 1906 is the chosen benchmark of the study because of these um, of these, um, railway connection that comes to be that, uh, again, connects Port Said, but, but has issues, it's slow, it's not really working as people want it to, want it to work. Uh, and so again, um, Forsyth becomes connected, but um, but still, uh, to some, it still feels removed and far away. Um, so. I think that the the benchmarks eighteen fifty nine as the beginning of the uh, of the excavation as well as the foundation of Port Said and nineteen oh six as the uh, connection of Port Said to the rest of Egypt uh, these benchmarks uh, capture one of the key questions running through this project running through this book. So, what who who whose uh, whose city was this? Who belonged here? Uh, Was this poor town uh, uh, in the hands of foreigners? Was this poor town an Egyptian poor town as well, uh, who belonged here? And going back full circle, uh, this is also one of the of the key questions, the key issues that Panait the opening cit- citation by Panait Strati also uh, raises.
0: Right, and. Uh... In researching the history of Port Said during that time, by the turn of the 20th century, the Egyptian uh, press as well as European press was covering the developments uh, taking place in Port Said. What are the disparities and differences in uh, documenting uh, the events uh, in the port and how these different uh, documentation processes in Europe and in Egypt uh, shape Uh, the memory of Port Said and how people remember the history of Port Said on these both sides.
1: I'm not sure I understood the question. Are you referring to the press specifically, like newspapers?
0: Uh, Yeah, newspapers and any account of Port Said uh, during that time. How both accounts differed uh, in documenting the project?
1: Um, hmm. Like whether it was a success or Uh, not? Is that what you meant?
0: Right, th- that's part, oh. but Or also uh, the the experiences on the ground of labor. Did do you find any uh, correspondence between uh, the labor and the different presses, uh, their news and experiences, reaching uh, uh, broader audiences, uh, or were they limited to Port Said itself?
1: The multiplicity of perspectives in the press is um, is the facet of the the multifaceted. Uh, sort of uh, um, um, so what we okay let me start let me start from scratch (laughs) so um, what is available in the contemporary press is um, is one of the strain of sources that I've uh, decided to employ in this book and in the press as in all the other kinds of sources that I've employed, there's a diversity of perspectives, uh, which sort of um, multiplied the viewpoints on on what was happening uh, in the in the Swiss Canal project in Port Said, um, and um, and so of course this multiplicity uh, was uh, was challenging to to capture in writing. But I think it's also what makes this book particularly interesting. There's no one uh, reading uh, that I privilege, but I rather try to juxtapose many different uh, standpoints. Um, If I can give a concrete example, um, I can mention the uh, fourth chapter of the book that is about entertainment venues, as I explained before, but before uh, delving into, uh, Egypt, into Port Said's dive bars and uh, uh, holes in the wall, uh, it also illustrates the diversity of, um, of leisure options uh, that were available in Port Said. Um, for example, newspapers, the press. Um, And I tried to show how different newspapers were targeting different audiences uh, segmented by uh, political lines or um, uh, lines of language use or, or belonging to a certain community. So what I tried to show by contrast is that while certain leisure, certain pastimes, including newspaper reading, uh, we're dividing up uh, portside's population. Uh, alcohol consumption, on the other hand, um, had the potential of actually uh, bringing people together. Then, of course, alcohol abuse would also fuel um, sort of emotions and uh, and prompt fights in portside's bars. So uh, that again did not was not always a very peaceful activity, but at least potentially uh, bars and cafes were open to, uh, to anyone. And we see from the sources that different kinds of individuals and, and social groups were, were actually really mingling in this kind of venues. But um, going back to your original question, I think that newspapers themselves, as well as the other sources, uh, that I've that I've used, they they really do capture uh, a multifaceted um, sort of uh, uh, rendition of of what migration meant at this time in the Mediterranean world at large, as well as um, en- encapsulated as it was encapsulated in Port Said in particular.
0: Thank you for that. Uh, moving to the present. Uh... How do you think the historical lessons and insights from your research can inform our understanding of contemporary issues related to migration in the Mediterranean region?
1: That's a very relevant. Uh, that's a very. Mm, I feel strongly about this, so thank you for for raising this issue. Um, and while we need to acknowledge the the role of the current Mediterranean as. Uh, as a, as a grave for so many uh, migrants who try to to cross it and and reach the fortress Europe, I think it's also important to acknowledge the the longer history, the longer past of of this region as a as a as a, um as a place of crossings. Not to not to do to deny the the weight, the gravity of of the present circumstances, but actually to to prove. Uh, that uh, migration is a is a longer is a longer phenomenon that um, that really brought uh, so many uh, together. So it's not just uh, the the sort of the desperate non white uh, bodies trying to cross the Mediterranean today, but those the very same desperate people were actually Europeans uh, going the other way. So. I think I'm trying to sort of um, to also um, I'm trying to contribute to contemporary debates by really trying to show that migration at other points in the past was something that could be attractive for so many who uh, resemble us in in the Western world today, us who uh, who have grown accustomed to our own privilege. And uh, maybe do not realize that um, that these very same places we inhabit today were places people were trying to flee from. Whereas what we think of as a relatively poor uh, region, people are trying to escape, such as the, the Middle East, was actually trying was actually managing to actually attract people who had um, thoughts and dreams and perspectives of of a better life.
0: Right, it's really amazing how uh, history turns around and repeats itself and (laughs) really surprises us. Uh, And the book definitely contributes to uh, what the Mediterranean is going through by reminding us of this longer history that we should be cognizant of. Um, Who do you hope will read this book and what sort of impact would you like it to have? You've mentioned some of it, but can you say more maybe about the scholarly community and students as well?
1: My hope is that the book will be Uh, enjoyed (laughs) and savored uh, for the uh, the everyday life that it manages to capture and for the efforts uh, that um, for for the hope uh, that it conveys that this everyday life actually tells us something about what was going on at this point in time um but with a sense of uh who was actually going through these uh, bigger changes in history. So the hope is that this will be of interest to uh, Egyptian modern Egyptian historians, but also to historians of the modern Middle East at large. Uh, and because of its uh, thematic focus, I'm also hoping that it could be interesting to uh, urban historians or historians of, uh, of port cities, historians of the Mediterranean, uh, and um, as well as historians of 19th century infrastructural changes uh, around the globe because uh, there, there were and there are connections to, uh, to what was happening in other sites uh, elsewhere, uh, between uh, the Suez Canal, but also other larger infrastructural projects. Uh, I could not really go into that much in the book, but again, that's something that I uh, plan to explore more in the future. Uh, but the bottom line here is that the way in which I tried to write this book was to uh, was to make it as enjoyable as possible, so that it could flow um, and be uh, enjoyed and, and and savored by readers who do not uh, need to be uh, uh, graduate students or or uh, historical or professional historians, but really by. Uh, Curious readers who want to know more about the the 19th century uh, and uh, and people moving about and and dreaming about other places and trying to trying to make it trying to make it elsewhere.
0: I second that. Uh, that the book is quite accessible and supplemented with amazing and gorgeous uh, reproductions of documents and images and photos of Port Said and maps and and the the very people you're talking about. And it's uh, as I'm reading the book, I can definitely think of many places and many names that resonate with the stories you're bringing. And I also hope the, the book gets picked up by movie makers uh, to make a feature out of it because the history of Fort <laughs> Said is fascinating. And we definitely need uh, somebody making a film about Fort Said. So please, somebody listens. Uh, well, thank you
1: awesome. for the endorsement. <laughs> that would be an interesting experience for sure.
0: Uh, so you mentioned uh, your future project and what you're hoping to work on. Can you please say more about what you've been working on since the book has been out, uh, and or what you hope to work on in the future?
1: Yes, I'm uh, still trying to sort of uh, <laughs> find a path forward. There's uh, there's still many different um, uh, trajectories that I I wish I could uh, take. Uh, so one is about the um, the history of of waste management in Port Said, and by waste I mean, of course, uh, refuse of all kinds, garbage, but also excrements, feces, and waste uh, wastewater.s um, There's something very interesting, I think, in the way in which uh, Port Said became a, a key uh, a key site in in disease disease control. Uh, both because of its uh, location along the swiss canal and because of its uh, peculiar um sort of um, uh, pe- peculiar genesis in a way as an artificial city being excavated in sand and being um on on, on the on the surface on the surface of the on the surface of water or nest, uh, nested in between a lake and a sea and a canal uh, that's the one direction in which i would love to uh, to go but then uh, another one is um, an exploration of uh, the egyptian state along its borders and how borders how egyptian borders came to be uh, again um, approached by multiple standpoints so both from the standpoint of the migrants doing the crossing but also uh, the standpoint of um, Of the Egyptian state, sort of uh, more centrally in terms of policies and and laws that were being issued at the time. Uh, But another uh, project that I would love to mention right now is a collaborative project that I'm carrying uh, forward with uh, Dr. Ella Fratantuano of the University uh, of. of North Carolina, Charlotte, uh, and uh, we are um, editing a special issue on the history of childhood uh, in the modern Middle East, uh, childhood and migration. So it will be a special issue at the intersection of uh, Middle East and childhood and migration histories, uh, something that's um, uh, has the goal of of really charting new ground and raising new new questions, and this is something that is um, that I, I especially care about uh, because uh, children are present in in my book uh, in seeking bread and fortune, uh, but there's definitely much more that uh, should be explored and that is being. Uh, research right now. So I'm, I'm really happy to be working with uh, Ella and to be uh, to create a showcase for those researchers who are working on, on topics um, that wed childhood and migration because really their perspectives um, will be exciting uh, will, will bring uh, exciting new insights uh, into the, into our discussion, into our uh, field of modern, of modern Middle East history.
0: All these projects sound terrific, and I look forward to seeing to seeing their fruition and maybe having you again on the podcast. Hopefully, uh, thank you so much for sharing your insights and stories uh, of these uh, migrant laborers with us today, talking about your fascinating book. And uh, thank you for the listeners for listening to today's episode in which we uh, explored Lucia Carminati's new book, Seeking Bread and Fortune in Port Said, Labor Migration and the Making of the Suez Canal between 1859 to 906, published by University of California Press in 2023. This is your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.